Chapter Thirteen of Pocket Island. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Pocket Island by Charles Clark Munn. Chapter Thirteen, The Girl I Left Behind Me. With bayonets flashing in the sunlight, with flags flying and keeping step to the martial music. Southton's brave Company E marched full one hundred strong to the depot the next day, ready to leave for the war. Almost the entire town was there to see them off, and hundreds of men, old and young, filled the air with cheers. Mingling in that throng were as many mothers, wives, sweethearts, and sisters with aching hearts whose sobs of anguish were woven into the cheering. Strong men wept as well. As the train rolled away, Manson fought the tears back that he might not lose the last sight of one fair girl, whose heart he knew was breaking. When it was all over, and he realized that for months or years, or perhaps never, would he behold her again, he knew what war and parting meant. He had obeyed his conscience and sense of duty, and now he must pay the price, and the payment was very bitter. Of his future he knew not, or what it might hold for him. He could only hope that when his hour of trial came that he would not falter, and if the worst must come that he would find strength to meet it as a soldier should. War is such a ghastly, hideous horror, and so utterly at variance with this simple narrative that I hesitate to speak of it. There can be no moments of happiness, no rifts of sunshine, and but few gleams of hope woven into the picture. All must be as war is, a varying but continued succession of dreaded horror and the fear of death. The first month of Manson's experience at the training camp was hard only in anticipation, and but a daily round of duty easily performed and soon passed. Liddy's frequent letters, each filled with all the sweet and loving words that, like flowers, naturally spring from a woman's heart, cheered him greatly. But when the order came to go to the front, the scene changed, and the reality of war came. He dreaded the first shock, not so much from fear of death, but lest his courage fail. When it came at Chancellorville, it was all over before he knew it. Although under fire for eight hours, he was not conscious of the lapse of time or aught else, except that he obeyed orders and loaded and fired with the rest, forgetting that he might fall, or whether he was brute or human. That night he wrote to Liddy, "'We have had our first battle, and for many hours I forgot even you. I know now that I shall not falter.' Poor Luzerne Norton, one of our academy boys, was killed, also three others from our company, and seven were wounded. When the letter reached Liddy, her heart sank. To know that one of her bright and happy schoolmates of a few months before had been shot and killed, and others wounded, was to have the dread reality of war brought very near home. "'Thank God my boy was spared,' she thought. That night she wrote him the most loving letter he had ever received, concluding with, "'Be brave, my darling, and always remember that come what may I shall keep my promise.'" 
Then came the Battle of Gettysburg, and although his company escaped with only a few wounded, it was here he first realized the ghastly horror of a battlefield after the fight is over, and how the dead are buried. When his next letter reached the sad-hearted one at home, no mention was made of this experience, and when she wrote asking why he had never told her how a battleground looked, or anything about it, he replied, "'Not for worlds would I tell you how we bury the dead, or how they looked, or anything of the sickening details. Please do not read them in the papers, for it will do you no good and cause you needless suffering. I wish to keep misery from you. Think of me only as doing my duty, and try to believe, as I do, that I shall come back to you alive and well. For the next six months he had no battles to face, only skirmishing and picket duty. When Christmas came, it brought him two boxes of good things to gladden his heart. One was from his dear old mother, and one was from Liddy, and tucked away in that, between four pairs of blue socks knit by her fair hands, was a loving letter and a picture of herself. Almost a month after came the Battle of Tracy City and the fall of brave Captain Upson. There were others wounded, but none of his company were killed. It was here Manson received his first promotion to a corporal's position, and he was afterward made sergeant. In the spring that followed, and almost one year from the day he first told Liddy of his love, came the Battle of Boyd's Trail. Five days after, when the moon was full one night, he wrote by the light of a campfire, "'Do you remember one year ago today, and where we were, and what I said?' I little realized that day what was in store for me. One thing I must tell you, however, and that is you can never know how much comfort it has been to me to live over all the happy hours we have had together. Every little word and look of love from you has come back to me again and again in my long, lonesome hours of picket duty, and tonight, as I sit by the campfire and see the moon shining through the trees, I can recall just how I felt the first time I kissed you, when the same moon seemed to be laughing at me. Do you remember one night when we were driving across the plains on our way back from a little party over to Marion, and you sang that Meet Me by Moonlight ballad? That was three years ago, and yet I can almost hear your voice now. When this letter reached Liddy, she read it in tears. For the next year it was with Manson as with all that slowly decreasing company, one unending round of nervous strain, long marches, sharp fighting, or, worse yet, carrying the wounded from the battlefield and burying the dead. They lived poorly, slept on the ground or in the mud at times, and became accustomed to filth and stench, indifferent to danger and hardened to death. When a comrade fell, those who knew him best said, "'Poor fellow, he's gone,' and buried him without a prayer. But the dead who were personally unknown awakened no more feeling than so many leaves fallen by the wayside. It could not well be otherwise, for such is war. Individual cases of heroism were common enough, and passed almost unnoticed. 
for they were all brave men who came to fight and die if need be, and no less was expected. War makes strange bedfellows, and forms unexpected friendships. It was after the Battle of Gettysburg, when the Tenth Army Corps remained in camp for several months, and one night while on picket duty, that Manson met with a curious adventure, and made the acquaintance of a fellow soldier by the name of Pullen, belonging to a Maine regiment, whose existence, and the tie thus formed, eventually led to a sequence of events of serious import. The enemy were encamped but a few miles away, and that most dastardly part of warfare, the firing upon pickets from ambush, was of nightly occurrence. Manson's beat that night was over a low hill covered with scrub oak, and across part of a narrow valley through which wound a small marsh-bordered stream. The night was sultry, and the dampness of the swamp formed in a shallow strata of fog filling this valley, but not rising above the level of the uplands. To add to the weirdness of his surroundings, the thin crescent of a new moon threw a faint light over all, and outlined the winding turns of this mist-filled gorge. Away to the northward a belt of dark clouds emitted frequent flashes of heat lightning, and occasional sharp reports along the line bespoke possible death lurking in every thicket. Keeping always in shadow, and oft pausing to listen, Manson slowly traversed his beat, waiting only at either end to exchange a whispered, "'All's well,' with the next sentry. What a vigil! And what a menace seemed hidden behind every bush, or spoke in every sound! The faint creak of a tree as the night wind stirred the branches, the rustle of leaves on the ground, or the breaking of a twig as some prowling animal moved about, the flight of a bird disturbed at its rest, the hoot of an owl on the hillside, or the croak of a frog in the swamp, were all magnified tenfold by the half-darkness and the sense of danger near. One end of his beat ended at the brook, and here he waited longest, for the sentry he met there was, like himself, hardly out of his teens, and unused to war. A bond of fellowship sprang into existence almost at sight, and made them brothers in feeling at once. It was while whispering together beside this brook, and oppressed by the suspense of night and danger near, that they detected a sound of more than usual ill omen and that the certain one that some creature had stepped into the stream above and was cautiously and slowly wading in it. Hardly breathing and bending low, the better to catch every sound that came, they listened with beating hearts until it ceased. Once they had detected the click of stone striking together as if moved by a human foot, and twice caught the faint plash of a bush or limb of tree dropping into the water, then the sound ceased, and only the faint murmur of that slow-running stream disturbed the silence. For a few moments they waited there, and then together crept up out of the gorge. Just as they emerged from the pall of the fog, and where the moon's thin disk still outlined that narrow white-blanketed valley, they paused, looking across, above, below, and all around, and listening as intently as two human beings so environed would when believing danger near. 
and as they looked and listened for moments that seemed hours, suddenly, scarce five rods away, they saw a man slowly emerged from the bush-covered bank, rapidly cross this narrow gorge, apparently walking on the fog, and disappear into the dark thicket on the other side. Forgetting in the first shock of supernatural added to natural fear that they stood fully exposed in the faint moonlight, they looked at each other, while a cold chill of dread seemed to check even the power to think. Manson was the first to recover, and with a quick, "'We must hide!' almost hissed, dropped on all fours behind a bush, followed by his comrade. That the motion betrayed them to watchful eyes is certain, for the next instant, out from the dark thicket across the gorge, there leaped a flash of red fire and the ping of a bullet, cutting leaves and twigs above them, told its own tale. Too scared to think of returning the fire, or conscious that to do so was unwise, they slowly crawled deeper into the scrub and along the top of the hillock. All that night they kept together, and how long it was until the gray light of coming dawn lifted a little of their burden of fear, no one who has never skulked along a picket line in darkness and dread can imagine. When the relief guard came, Manson and his mate tried to discover where their night-prowling enemy had crossed that narrow gorge, if he had crossed at all but could not. Whether ghost or shadow or flesh-and-blood enemy had walked on fog in the faint moonlight before them, they could not tell, and never afterward were they able to determine. The only certain fact was that someone had fired at them, and fired meaning to kill. Wisely, too, they agreed to keep the ghost part of that experience a secret and none of their comrades ever knew they had seen a man walking upon the fog. End of chapter 13 Recording by Roger Moline